Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. This past September, we were privileged to join some of you from this congregation and some from other parts of this country and travel to Europe to trace some of the footsteps of the Reformers. It was a wonderful experience, deepening and enriching in very significant ways. But on the day we were in Siena, Italy, I got lost. Siena is a beautiful little city, very quaint, picturesque, exactly what you would expect Italy to be. There's a wonderful square there where we spent most of our time looking at the scenes and the architecture, the people, and enjoying some of the delights like the gelato. That is the way life is intended to be lived. <laughs> and then we headed back to the bus. It was quite a walk back to the bus. They didn't have any parking in that downtown part of the city, so it was quite a trek back, quite a group of us, and we were in different places, people in and out of stores, slowly making our way back to the bus. As we were doing so, I looked in the store of one of the shops, and I saw there in that shop window the most delectable fresh fruit. Now, I have to tell you, when you're traveling, you don't get much fresh, or not nearly as much as I enjoy anyway. And so I saw that fresh fruit, and I thought, I've got to have some of that. I'll duck in, buy the fruit, be out, we'll be on our way. So in I went, I got the fruit that I wanted, got in line, and began to wait. And to wait. The gracious, kind lady in front of me couldn't quite figure out how to pay. And so she was sorting through cards and change and wallet and money, and, and I was thinking, boy, we, we, we've, we've got to move this along. And it took her a while. It took her about a week. <laughs> and when she finally was done, I quickly paid and dashed out of the store to find my group, which was nowhere to be seen. And so I headed down the road. I thought, it's good. It's all good. This looks just like Loma Linda. I'm, I'm good. Down the street. And I thought, this looks very familiar. I got to an intersection, one of those roundabouts that had probably five roads going off of it. And I thought, well, I know that's the one. I remember that distinctly. That's the one. I remember that one distinctly. Well, wait a minute. I think that may be the one. And I couldn't figure out for sure which one it was. I finally took the one that I was sure it was and made my way, found a church that did look actually familiar, failing to remember that most of the churches looked familiar, <laughs> and finally realized I don't have any idea where I am. I wasn't used to being in a country where I didn't speak the language. There are some similarities between Italian and Spanish, but not enough to really be able to communicate. And so I'm trying to ask and make signals and signs and buses and tourists and and people kind of looked at me, and finally they said, Oh, but yeah, yeah, get right down that road. And off I went to find about 50 tourist buses nowhere near where we had parked. And so I thought, well, this is a pickle. Not sure what to do now, but I thought, well, I'll call on the phone. I had my cell phone with me, thankfully, and punched in the number of our tour guide and waited. 
And it rang and rang. And finally the voice came on the line of Ezer, our tour guide, six five, six foot five Israeli, bigger than life, who was always prepared, never anxious. Ah, yes, pastor, tell me what it looks like where you are. I said, it looks like churches and people and buses. Ah, yes, I know right where that is. <laughs> but over a period of time in conversing with Ezra, he finally figured out, and finally uh, above the crowd, head and shoulders above the crowd, I saw Ezra making his way in my direction. I was really happy to see Ezra because I don't like being lost. And I suspect you're probably the same. It's not a fun experience to be lost, whether you are geographically lost, emotionally casting about, or spiritually lost. But we are surrounded by lost people. We encounter them everywhere we go. You minister to them in the hospital. You work beside them at the office. They live the next door down from you in the dorm. They are everywhere we go. You stand behind them in line at the grocery store. People who are lost. But it's not just that we are surrounded by them. It's also that they are among us. And in fact, it's possible that you might be one of them this morning. There was a lost person who walked in the door, maybe behind you. You greeted them. Maybe it was the parent who was frustrated in children's Sabbath school this morning. Or maybe the one who passed you the offering plate in the pew. Now maybe we ought to define what we mean by lost. Maybe the most simple definition is that we are separated from the light and the life of God. But we might ask more pragmatically, what does that mean? I want to read you a definition of being lost that I came across. I could not find the source, the author, so I can't tell you that, but it rang true to me. Listen to this definition. Being lost is living by a set of values that systematically dismantle your life. Being lost is living by a set of values that systematically dismantle your life. You know that what you're doing is not working. It's not having success. It is not bringing you peace. It is not bringing health to your relationship. It's not even bringing health to your body, not to speak of your soul. Living by a set of values that systematically dismantle your life. And that means you live in darkness. Now, honestly, living in darkness for some people is a relief because it hides them. There's a website, a website called The Experience Project. The Experience Project is actually on break right now, but while it was up and functioning, it was a website in which people could write of their experiences for others to read and share, maybe create dialogue and community. During the time it was up and running, there were 67 million experiences shared. They would ask questions, put a question up on their website. What is it like to be lonely? What do you enjoy as a pastime? Who do you like to hang out with? And people would write their experiences. Well, one of the questions they put up had to do with darkness. 
what is it like to live in darkness? I want to read you one of the responses to that, written by a young woman who went by the name Beyond Repair. Says something, doesn't it? Beyond Repair. This is what she wrote. I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the darkness, you cannot see what's coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be because then you are free from where, what you were and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. She may have found that because it allowed her to hide herself, her sin, her shame. But not everybody wants to be in the darkness. Many crave light. The darkness means lost. I wonder if the shepherds felt that way. The shepherds on that night so long ago, that first Christmas night, the Scripture doesn't tell us what they felt, what was their experience. It doesn't tell us what the prayers and the yearnings of their hearts were, although we can accurately imagine, I'm sure, that they, along with all of their fellow townspeople and country folk, yearned and desired for a Redeemer to come, a, a salvation that would come from God, light that would pierce the darkness. The shepherds had many reasons to feel lost. They were pushed to the margins of society. It was not a good life. They did have one saving grace, and that was that King David from the past, he had been a shepherd. So they could check that one in the wind column. But beyond that, it went downhill. In fact, I want you to listen to the words of R. Allen Culpepper, New Testament scholar, as he describes what shepherding was like in the day of Christ. Here's what he writes. Shepherding was a despised occupation at the time. Although the reference to shepherds evokes a positive pastoral image for the modern reader and underscores Jesus' association with the line of David, in the first century, shepherds were scorned as shiftless, dishonest people who grazed their flocks on other people's lands. Were they alive today? They wouldn't be in this worship service. They weren't permitted their constant contact with animals made them ceremonially, ritually impure. They might provide the lambs for the sacrifices at the temple, but they could not themselves join in the worship at the temple. Pushed aside, relegated to the back 40, in the darkness of the night, they had many reasons to wonder about their standing with God. I wonder if they felt lost. It's not fun to be lost. We usually yearn for the light. But somebody here today knows that experience. In fact, I'd like to share the experience with you of somebody who knows a bit about being in a dark place. Somebody who knows something about coming to the light, I'd like to invite Joel Chapin to join me on the platform this morning. Joel is a medical social worker at a rehab hospital in San Bernardino. 
and is now a member of our congregation. Joel, we're delighted to have you here this morning. Welcome. Men, have a seat. Some of you, if you worship with us on a regular basis, will, will recognize Joel because two weeks ago, just two weeks ago, Joel was baptized here in our congregation. It was a wonderful day, Joel. Now, Joel, you know a little bit about being in a dark place. And I know that a story precedes every baptism. So can you tell us just a bit about what life was like? Well, um, I think um, basically I... I was a I was a drinker. I was a I was kind of a private drinker. I would I would uh, oh boy take your time. So sorry. <laughs> sorry guys. No worries. Um, I had gotten through uh, graduate school and, mm -hmm. and while drinking and had been able to kind of cope with things and, and get through it. I started a career being like a working at hotels and. I helped uh, helped a lot of uh, help people set up audio and sound and stuff uh -huh. like that. And, so you uh, were able to function in life and yeah, do your work, do your studies, everything else. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the trouble was that the the drinking would slowly kind of take its toll. Mm. It was uh, it was interrupted to my sleep. Mm. It was caused chaos in my relationship with other people. It was distracting in terms of my constantly thinking about maintaining my my drinking all the time. Mm. It was on my mind constantly, mm -hmm. and uh, all the same, I was able to stop a couple of times for long periods of time, so up to a year even, even more than that, and was able to kind of, you know, convince myself in a way that I had this, I had this going on, I had this, right. this handled, I could do this, you know, because I, you know, I always had a job, I was always able to make things happen, but right. all the same, the slow gradual introduction to failure mm. and inability to do the things that I, I wanted to do, the inability to really put together like a constant effort towards the things in my life that were important, right? family, work, other people. I was a very, very selfish person in those days. So kind of like that definition, a slow dismantling of the key and important things of life. Exactly. Now, there came a point in time that was, I'm going to use the term, kind of a bottom moment. Can you describe that? Well, like I said, I had been, you know, I had been fighting with it hard. And, mm -hmm. and I kind of come to the conclusion that I was really losing. I was... I, I was I was pretty beaten, and uh, my girlfriend at the time left to go see her family, mm -hmm. so I was left alone for a couple of days, and I had a couple of days off. Mm -hmm. I didn't usually drink this way, but in this in this 
situation, I, I, I decided to, you know, get a large amount of alcohol, and I sat in my room and uh, started to watch a movie. Mm. And uh, the movie was, for whatever reason, my computer would play movies over and over again until you stop them. So it's it would just loop them. They would just loop it. And so for two days, I was sitting there watching this movie, and I still can't tell you what the movie's fully about. I remember kind of what it's about, but I, hmm. I could not give you a plot synopsis, even though I've probably seen it like 20 times. <laughs> wow. So I would black out. I'd be in and out of consciousness mm. and not eating, just drinking. Mm. And um, I'd always fought against this, you know, trying to hold on to this sort mm -hmm. of like not being, not allowing the drink to kind of like just become constant. Sure. And so during one of those sort of blackout periods, I, I felt like I was looking into a giant room, this great big room, like cave or cavern or something that was so big and so vast and so dark that I could not see the other side. Mm. And um, inside that cavern, I knew I had been beaten. I was done. My, my will to fight was, was crushed. I knew that I couldn't continue to fight anymore. And I saw sort of like my life in a, in a, in a feeling. It's hard to explain. It was like a feeling and yet a reality that my life was going to be this, this feeling of just loss and failure and just... Defeat. Defeat. Wow. Wow. And uh, when, I, when I woke up from my stupor and, and I, I had these pretty, pretty nasty, what I feel like it was, was maybe a little bit of uh, low-level alcoholic encephalopathy, I was really nervous and I couldn't concentrate on anything and I was terrified, absolutely wow. terrified. And I was still trying to go to work and I couldn't function, I could barely, barely work. I ended up getting fired from my job probably because of this. Hmm. And I was a waiter at the time, which I'm a really terrible waiter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really hard job, though, you guys. It's really, really difficult. So leave good tips, right? <laughs> and so then somebody pointed you somewhere. Yeah. So, so in this kind of moment of terror, I, I, I ran to the only safety I could think of, which was, you know, mental health. So right. I started going to this, uh, this uh, dual diagnosis program and, and met some pretty, like one of the social workers there was this really wonderful man who, who helped me, uh, helped guide me towards going to AA and, mm. and doing that kind of thing. Right. And, um, you know, I, I don't... I don't know if I would have gone in that direction if he hadn't framed it in the way that he did, uh -huh. in this sort of warm, casual, kind of friendly, kind of cool kind of way. <laughs> and so, so I ended up going to, um, to AA and uh, started, got a sponsor, started working the steps and started racking up some sobriety. And... Um, now, AA brings you face-to-face -face with a higher power. Correct. And uh, my, my sponsor was basically said, you know, you really need to sit down and 
talk to God and talk to your higher power, have, have it out with him or whatever, and come to some kind of conclusion. So, wow, that was another key moment, I think. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, uh, I really had this kind of bitterness against God. I really felt like from a young age that I looked around the world and, and saw pain and misery and just was not happy with what he had made here. I just want to say that I don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> In fact, quite the opposite. But I, at the time, I, I saw, I saw an unhappy, evil place. Mm. And it occurred to me that the God that would make this place couldn't possibly care about me and, my, and what goes on with me. Mm. And uh, so going, going to talk to him with my tail between my legs felt like, you know, I'm preparing to get slapped around, you know. <laughs> mm. Wow. But um, I remember the day I sat down in, in my living room in Redondo Beach and I don't know, I guess I was just staring at the wall and I said, you know, I can't do this on my own. I, I've messed it all up. My life, is a, my life is a wreck. Things are falling apart. I thought I had this, but I really, really just do not. And I need you to show me that you're there and that you care. Wow. And um, as soon as I stopped talking, <laughs> I, felt, I felt this presence just fill me and just felt this love wash over me. And, um, wow. Wow. It just struck me that this whole time I'd been cussing him out and telling him what a rotten job he's doing. <laughs> and he had just been, he had been there just waiting. Wow. Patiently for, him to, for me to invite him in and say, hey, I need you. And he was there with his warmth and his love. Joel, that's amazing. That's an amazing moment. Now let me ask you, from Redondo Beach to Loma Linda University Church is a bit of a journey. What brought you here? What brought you to baptism? Well, there were some failures along the way. Like I said, I got fired from one job and decided <laughs> I wanted to be a social worker and went to school and got laid off of another job and then ended up, you know, having to, having to be, you know, start to really test my faith in this, this, you know, higher power, which I still kind of was referring to as. Um, but he, he took care of me and led me and kept on guiding me along, and I ended up working at this, uh, this hospital um, that I'm working at now. And I started going to uh, the dog park and hanging out and uh, going to AA out here and I'm just trying to trying to make it happen here in San Bernardino. I was in a temp agency and got hired. And at the dog part, I, I met my wife. And uh, 
So you, you went to the dog. Now, you had gone to church as well, I think, at some point. Is mm -hmm. that correct? That's right. Um, my, I was staying in this terrible little apartment, and uh, my downstairs neighbor was a, was a lady who was, uh, was, well, kind of physically handicapped. But she, was, she used the access transportation to go, go to church, and she had failed to you know, get the, the, the bus to take her. Right. So um, she asked me if I would take her, and I said, okay, why not, you know. So I started going to church with her, and I was on Sunday. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you had a good experience at the church. But I did, and, and the pastor there was talking a lot about the, uh, the, way, the way God guides us, the way that, you know, the Holy Spirit works in our lives, and we, we get to understand different ideas and um, just with experiences and he's there sort of helping us along guiding and, us yeah and so that really resonated with me because i really felt like that's what's been happening to me since since i you know called out from right from my my desperation and so so when my not then not yet wife asked me to uh she says I, it was my idea, but I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> Ask fact, can I say something about your wife? Her name is Julie. If you look in the bulletin today, you will see that Julie Chapin is becoming a member through transfer of membership today. Julie, I wonder if you would be so kind as to stand. Would you do that? Uh, we welcome you here today. So you all were hanging out at the dog park, and the dogs were done and wanted to go home, but you all are still talking. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, we were talking a lot, and it seemed like um, three or four times a week we would talk and talk, and so, so we went out, and then eventually she invited me to church, and, and so... And came here. And I came here, wow. and uh, I don't know, though, I, what I found here kept me wanting to come back. Like mm. the, you know, at first it was the sermons. Like, I had a lot of, I had a lot of difficulties with uh, organized religion, and it really, it, it took a lot to kind of work through. And, um, you know, it just seemed like every time I would come, you would be talking about something that I was stumbling over. Wow. And I just kept on break, breaking through those barriers and coming to the point where I was like, yeah, I can accept that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm good with that. And to be honest, looking back, I'm not sure what those things were anymore. Wow, praise Cause, God. Because it's such a part of how I kind of look at things. And then you started studying the Bible with Pastor Miguel. Yes, I did. And uh, he's kind of shy and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just had a, I, I, I felt a real connection with him, and he was just really engaging and, and funny, and it was such a wonderful experience. Also started, um, you know, uh, helping out at the Bible Lab, and, and like just, just the warm community there at the Bible Lab has yes. just been wonderful. Your day of baptism, what was that like? Oh, yeah, so apparently the, the towel guy <laughs> was not there that day, or he... We have a deacon who usually supplies the towels and helps us out 
backstage. So he was fired? Is that what happened? I think he was not able to come that day. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, the <laughs> uh, so Pastor Roy Ice came back there with with me and Miguel and so they, two pastors who have been yeah. really important in your journey. Absolutely, it's wonderful. Just they they both prayed with me, and I just felt like I just remember thinking as they were praying, like this is this is something I will always always treasure. Beautiful. Now, you need to know about Joel that he also is a musician and he writes songs and sings. This kind of experience has been so deep and so profound to him, he's written it in a song. And, Joel, I wish I, I would like you to sing that for us today. As you listen to Joel sing, you will trace the realities of his journey. And I would encourage you to think about that moment in Redondo Beach as a merry moment, that moment when God breaks in, God breaks through, and does something real and dramatic in a human being's life. So thank you so much, Joel, for your willingness to be here and to talk, but also to sing. Today, this day forever. 
why he saved me, I couldn't say. I lost my mind from all the fighting. He led me gently with Father's hands to a love I couldn't so the light shined. The light shined in Redondo Beach. But the light shined outside of ancient Bethlehem as well. Luke records it. Luke chapter 2 beginning with verse 8 this way. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The light shined in Redondo Beach. The light shined outside of ancient Bethlehem. And that same light can shine into your heart and into your life here today not only changing you, but changing others through you. I want to read just one more thing. Take a couple of moments, but it's worth it. The words are the words of Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination in America. Moore writes on a blog about a time that he and some of his colleagues had an opportunity to talk with the great theologian Carl F.H. Henry. Henry was near the end of his life, and as these church leaders talked, they began to bemoan and bewail the condition of the American church. They said, here in America, it's, it's just a flagging zeal. It's a flagging doctrine. People who don't take discipleship seriously... What of the coming generation? When will God shine a light into their hearts so that they can pick up the torch and lead us? And Henry said to them, <laughs> he said to them, well, you're making a mistake because you're talking about genetic Christianity. You're expecting it just to be passed through genetics. And that's not the way God always works. Sure, He wants the next generation, but have you ever considered that maybe the key leaders that God will use in the world today are people who are at this very point in time still unbelievers? Lives that are lost. Destinies that are messed up. Waiting for the light of God to shine on them. 
And then Moore quotes what Henry said to them. He said, Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles, he asked us. Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis, a Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors for the faith. And then Moore writes his own words. Of course, the same principle applied to Henry himself. Who knew that God would raise up a newspaper man from a nominally Lutheran family to defend the Scriptures for generations of believers? The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all of that around and seems to delight to do so. The new birth doesn't just transform lives, creating repentance and faith. It also provides new leadership to the church and fulfills Jesus' promise to gift his church with everything needed for her onward march through space and time. After all, while Philip was leading the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, Saul of Tarsus was still a murderer. Most of the church in any generation comes along through the slow, patient discipleship of the next generation. But just to keep us from thinking Christianity is evolutionary and natural, or to use Dr. Henry's term, genetic, Jesus shocks his church with leadership that seems to come like a big bang out of nowhere. Whenever I'm tempted to despair about the shape of American Christianity, I'm reminded that Jesus never promised the triumph of the American church. He promised the triumph of the church. Most of the church in heaven and on earth isn't American. Maybe the hope for the American church is right now in Nigeria or Laos or Indonesia. Jesus will be king and his church will flourish. And he'll do it in the way he chooses, by exalting the humble and humbling the exalted, and by transforming cowards and thieves and murderers into the cornerstones of his new city. So relax. And be kind to that atheist in front of you on the highway, the one who just shot you an obscene gesture. He might be the one who evangelizes your grandchildren. <laughs> because that is the way God works. God takes those who are in the darkness and shines into their life the light of life. He takes those who are lost, grips them by the grace of His Spirit, and sets them on a new path. He can do that for you today. He did it in Bethlehem. He did it in Redondo Beach. He did it with many others, and He will do it with you. I pray, I hope, that before you leave this sanctuary today, the prayer in your heart will be a prayer of opening. What better way could it be stated than how Joel shared it? God, I've made a mess. The values, the principles by which I'm living are dismantling my life. I come before you asking your help. That's the prayer. That's the merry moment. And that merry moment 
will lead to a merry Christmas. God of grace, thank you for the witness and testimony of the shepherds who heard the angels sing for the first time. Thank you for the testimony, the witness of Joel today, and Lord, of many others who have known that experience. Lord, I pray for friends here today, friends who might have walked in here knowing inside, though no one around them knows, I am lost. My life, the values by which I live are dismantling my life. Lord, I pray that that person right now today would just say, God, I'm whipped. I'm done. I need you. And would you, through the power of your grace, shine a light into their darkness? In the name of Jesus, amen. I want to offer you, I want to offer you the opportunity. If you would like someone to pray with you, right across the courtyard to your left is the prayer place. There are prayer volunteers there today who would love to pray with you and encourage you in your journey with Jesus.